great pleasure and a tremendous honor to see you all here, colleagues, friends, community. Um, I want you to join me in welcoming Paul Levitz to our colloquium. Uh, Paul Levitz is um, one of uh, our great talents in the field of comics, both as a creator, uh, perhaps the word both as a creator, uh, as an editor, and as a critic. Uh, Paul is most famously uh, known as uh, having worked at DC Comics from the ground floor all the way up, 30 years in DC, um, where he finished his career as both the president and the publisher of DC Comics. Um, the writer of uh, 75 Years of DC Comic, The Art of Myth-Making, uh, the monumental seminal text on DC Comics and the importance and the sort of, uh, the, well, the importance and um, the sort of reach of popular comics, especially DC. Um, Paul is currently a professor, visiting professor. He just informed me that he's at uh, three different institutions teaching four different classes. For those of you who are boned up on New York City um, geography, he's down at Pace, he's up at Columbia, and he's further up at Manhattanville. And uh, it's a, really a great honor to have you here, Paul. So give him a round. Thank you. More informally, I kind of, um, I apologize. I don't sit much. My, I have a, a back injury. And more informally, I always think, uh, when I think of the, the significance, centrality, importance, and impact of Paul Levitz in the field of comic, I often think of the people who you brought in or hired um, and their impact, just the names alone. Uh, it's almost like a pantheon. We're talking about Marv Wolfman. We're talking about Alex. Alan Moore, we're talking about Frank Miller, we're talking about George Perez, and of course, an editorial, we're talking about Karen Berger, who's, uh, again, their own significance is extraordinary. Um, first of all, it's great to see you. And sir, I guess I wanted to begin by opening up with the, the, the sort of the question that right now you're working on um, a new book, uh, Will Eisner. Yeah. Um, sort of the, the one of the, the the father the kind of figures for what we call the graphic novel. What have you been discovering, sir? Cool. Well, first a modest correction in there. Thank you for the warm welcome. I always enjoy being at MIT. It's my cosmic revenge for not being able to afford to go here as a child. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, Marv preceded me oh, in man. comics, and George George is of my generation, sort of simultaneous. I had a significant role in bringing them both to D.C., and uh, hopefully in getting them to do some of their more interesting work. But uh, I can't claim credit for their careers the way I probably can to some extent for Karen's having hired her before she had been a comic book reader. Um, but at any rate... Um, so Abrams Comic Arts turns to me uh, about two years ago, three years ago, and says, we've got a great book on Jack Kirby, we've got a great book on Harvey Kurtzman, Will Eisner is the third of the great founding father cartoonists of comics. Uh, give us the book on Will. 
Thank you, sir. There's a real challenge inherent in this on many levels. First of all, he's been done as biographies. A couple of, couple of different writers have taken that on. Small presses, but still. Um, artists have half-lives in culture. There's a point in time at which they begin to lose cultural relevancy, and how do you get the world to pay attention, no matter how important they are? Scholars will still follow it, will understand how things develop, but you need with an artist to create a form of immediacy. Will's work is incredibly beautiful. It's a coffee table book. It'll get to incorporate about 200 illustrations, several of his spirit stories. Looks like we'll be able to have all of the classic spirit splashes. Uh, there's about 50 that are the, the trademarks of what he, what he did, incorporating the story into the splash in that fashion. But I don't just want to reach the people who already know Will's life and already know everything and just say, oh, this is another pretty book on Will Eisner. So I positioned the work as saying, what is Will's meaning to the graphic novel? The graphic novel has become a vital literary form in America, as it was in much of the world before it was here. What did Will do that mattered for that? Famously, he created a book called Contract with God, which was one of the seminal graphic novels. But that book was not an extraordinary commercial success. It wasn't by any stretch of the imagination the first graphic novel distinctively, uniquely in a fashion. The neologism of graphic novel was not Will's. Uh, it may have been an act of independent creation. It may have been his remembering the term from other people's either correspondence with him or the things he'd read about it, but it predates his usage of it by the better part of a decade. So what did he do? And what I really found embodies itself to some extent in the title of the book, which is Will Eisner, Champion of the Graphic Novel. I think Will's ultimate role was as the evangelist proving the form was viable to creative people. When you look at what Frank Miller... Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman have said about their own fit with the graphic novel, and all three of those men played extraordinary roles in making the graphic novel culturally important. They all look to what Will did at that moment with Contract with God, and they say, this is the moment I believed it was possible. Uh, Jules Pfeiffer had a wonderful book called Tantrum that was out about two minutes apart from it. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby did the first book format graphic novel out of, that Marvel had touched of the Silver Surfer a minute before, but it was Contract with God that said to these incredible creators that this was a form they could create in and that was worth working in and that was what their careers should ultimately be about. And the research, in the process of doing the research, because you're, I mean, Paul, you sort of are, have a, a kind of an, your position is actually very interesting. And part of the reason I begin with the, the project that you're working on now is because in some ways, of course, it's partially recuperation, archival, critical. But you sort of stand astride both the early sort of 
period, and of course we could go back if you want to kind of time it, there's earlier than that, but your interests have had you in an early period sort of thinking about Phil Eisner, thinking about that era, but you also were present and very involved in what brings that sort of version of what we think about comics culture and the comics industry to what we have now. Sort of this kind of, um, you know, uh, transmedial doesn't begin to describe. And also the sort of penetration, in quotes, of comic cultures or at least comic figures or comic properties into the larger culture um, is something that would mm-hmm. be unimaginable um, in Will Eisner's period. And you were present through a lot of this. What are you thinking about as you're going through sort of working through Will about how do you think Will would feel in the present? Is there what you know about the current present speaking back to Will in any way? I feel that Will certainly speaks forward to us, but is there anything about what you know about comics now that is engaging the material in interesting ways other than just when people look back and say, boy, in the old old days, in the good old days, or in the bad old days, is there more than just that dialectic in this research for you? Uh, There's so much more. Howie Chaikin jokes that our generation of creative people in comics came in at the end of the beginning. Um, We showed up while virtually all of the people who created the medium were still around and were still accessible, either doing their last work in the field or still showing up at the conventions and sitting around in the evening bullshitting with us. Um, So we got to be friends with these people who began establishing the rules of it. Shelley Mayer, the, one of the great seminal editors, man who is credited by many people, including Art Spiegelman, with having done the first ever memoir of, of a cartoonist in his Scribbly strip back uh, in the 1930s and the 1940s. And that's, of course, become such an important form now. Um, I think what Will would have taken the most joy in in what's going on now is the open accessibility of the field. One of the things that is fascinating to me about comics specifically, but then its linkage to what is going on culturally, I feel that we're emerging into an era of extraordinary self-expression. I think the tools that your generation ahead of engineers have now put put on everybody's hip or in everybody's back pocket are engaging young people with an opportunity to create an interest in creating. Of course, many of them are creating nonsense. The vast majority... Sturgeon, Sturgeon's law now is an understatement. We're now no longer at 90% of everything being crap. We may be at 99%. But on the other hand, it reminds me enormously of uh, an incident in the 1970s. We were working with a Philippine art studio that was incredibly talented. And my then boss, Joe Orlando, who's one of the 
wonderful editors and cartoonists in the business had traveled to the Philippines and was talking with the Philippine Minister of Culture. Malang, wow, you're a small country, you're a poor country. How do you have all these wonderful artists? Well, in America, you don't think everyone can be a mathematician, but you teach every child to add and subtract and multiply and divide, and in the course, you discover who has mathematical talent. Well, in the Philippines, we think everyone should know how to draw a horse. I can't draw a horse. I don't imagine there are a lot of people in this room who can draw a horse. And God knows we don't teach people to draw horses in America. I think the evolution of the smartphone, of the desktop publishing tools, even tweeting and all of those social media tools are encouraging people to express themselves. And in the process, I think we're going to discover an enormously greater number of people who actually have something to say in the next generation. We're going to have to wade through the 99% that's crap. No unkindness to everyone's cat videos. Um, Damn. I just think there aren't enough dog videos. You know, it's a, it's a pro- proportionality question. Um, I think that's what would have enthralled Will. He would ha- Comics because of the existence of the webcomic, because of the existence of short-run print-on-demand technology, and because of the peculiarities of the comic distribution system. Talking for, for a second with Tony a minute ago as he, he came in and made the comment to him that I think we may be at the point where there are more comic shops now than there are independent bookstores in this country. This is not to say that's a good thing for the shrinkage of the one, but it's a wonderful thing for the perseverance of the other. Um, Comics are a very accessible medium for young people to create in, and we're seeing a burst of self-publishing, of self-creation. I think Will would have enjoyed all of that enormously. Uh, The relevancy of creative technique that he developed in the 1940s with the spirit is certainly still true, but most of that is masked by the fact that it's now channeled through several generations of successors. Things that Eisner did well before most cartoonists are now picked up on by young cartoonists, but they don't even realize they're channeling Will Eisner. And in fact, they're not. They're channeling Will Eisner layered with Jim Steranko, layered with Jim Lee, or whoever may be even this year's newest spirit. Um, but Will, as one of the people who really wrote the vernacular of the medium uh, at its beginning, uh, still deserves enormous credit for all of that. You know, you mentioned... Um our smartphones, but I'm also thinking of the other things um, you mentioned, uh, web comics, tablets, uh, these platforms, yeah? Um, what affordances do you think that they have yeah, that perhaps the printed page lack? Um, do you, are you thinking about or theorizing what some of the implications for that are for the way we think about comics now? Because, I mean, you were here... Just a, you were here a year ago helping teach our world building class, and one of the things you came into contact with was our MIT students, and how many of them are interested in doing 
comics work, but not on paper. And they're interested in taking it into other sort of... Let me step back and answer, answer half, of, half of the piece of your last question that I didn't get to with half of the piece of this, because I think they, they interconnect in a fashion. Um, on one level, geek culture has eaten popular culture. We've seen that. That's probably my next book project. Um, Bold claim, sir. <laughs> well, um, we'll see if I can sell it to somebody. <laughs> but I think a pivotal part of that really relates back to the second half of your question on technology. For my generation, there was enormous technological change, but the technological change was all on a very industrial scale. I learned to program on an IBM 360 in the basement of uh, one of Columbia's buildings that I would go to on a Saturday, and the PhD students in those days could do Snoopy on a doghouse made out of little X's, and that, that was doctoral work at that time. Um, I still couldn't do it. The current generations, and I don't know exactly where to draw the line. You may be on the right side of that line, or it may be a few years after you. Um, but certain, certainly well before the time of everybody enrolled at NYU, at, NYU, at MIT now, um, have lived through constant personal technological change. As a storyteller, I believe that's the linkage, that's the thing that broke the impossibility barrier. I believe that the current generation know what's impossible and what's not, but they don't quite take that as a firm boundary. There's no zombies, but maybe there could be. I know there are no vampires, but somebody could come up with a formula that could cause us to have vampires. Um, and I think that's the shift that broke the barrier so that for my generation, science fiction and fantasy stories were the province of a very small group of people, probably everyone who was attending MIT at the time, but not a lot of people attending normal schools, and certainly not anyone who wasn't attending school. The people who were reading science fiction were highly literate, generally well-educated people in those years. Um, and science fiction themes, when they went on to television, the original Star Trek program, things like that, um, had challenges reaching a mass audience because they could cream off the people who understood technology on some level, but then they hit a barrier. That barrier doesn't exist anymore. And I think that lack of the impossibility gene, that impossibility barrier in people's minds is a critical factor to why the culture has shifted. Um, that's indirectly credit to the geeks, because largely the same people who were coming up with the geek cultural ideas were coming up with the technological things that created the transitions. Um, but it's very directly linked to all of the technological tools you're talking about. I'm working with a tablet today. I couldn't work with a tablet two years ago. It didn't exist in that form to be able to do this. So I have to be open to what the next thing might be. Um, it's a shame that Branson's plane went down, certainly, but 
there's going to be another one in a minute or two. Um, okay, the ticket's past my price range right now, but it's not a whole hell of a lot more than four years of tuition here. Um, <laughs> no, it's, we can see the point at which all these things that were impossible or outrageous are going to be normative, and that's changing the culture, the effect on transmedia. It's not simply that the comics ideas have broken through, but the level of imagination of future possibility has broken through in some, some wonderful and some terrifying ways. The other half of your question, the narrower one of what do these tools do for comics particularly, there's some kid in some basement somewhere who is playing with those tools and coming up with a new storytelling form. When you look at the transition from radio to television, the first television shows very often were simply almost transliterations of radio programming. They took the same program, and instead of saying it into microphones, they walked around a stage and said them. To some extent, you can argue that the transformative moment is when they married the physical comedy of burlesque into the verbal humor of radio. Whether you give Lucy the credit for it, but Lucy certainly is a paradigm for it that we can all easily associate with. The minute you have her chasing the chocolates on the assembly line, you have a model that has now worked for television and replaced the radio model. I think there's a kid somewhere in a basement doing that for comics, who's looking at this and saying, what can you do with these tools? About 14, 15 years, 14, 15 years ago, um, I developed a proposal for a Batman project called uh, Death, Download Death, which was uh, going to be effectively a weekly web serial, somewhat in comics form, but incorporating a detective story where if you rolled your cursor over the laptop, not that somebody had a laptop in those days, um, you'd be able to get a clue of the information, and things would build, and over a number of weeks a story would unfold and that would be a new form of a detective story that might be able to be told through the character. It was way too expensive at the time, not particularly practical. Uh, the company d didn't go ahead with it. But, and, and highly imperfect, certainly relative to what you can do technologically now. But there's a way to take all of what you can do with things being linked, connected, that will create a new form of comic. Um, one of the courses that I teach most years uh, is a grad school, Pace grad school and publishing course on transmedia and the future of publishing, the subtitle of which is, you think you're going to get to play with paper your whole lives, kids. Uh, let's talk about what else you can do. Um, and I found it fascinating in that first time I taught it, we devoted a day to the evolution from the Britannica to Wikipedia and the intermediate forms that had developed that obviously Wikipedia has some utilities that a print encyclopedia doesn't on so many technological levels. 
But my students, who were a very print-oriented group, remember, because you're dealing with pub- people taking a master's in publishing, um, valued very, very highly the potential interactivity of Wikipedia. They rated almost as highly as its ubiquity their ability theoretically to go in and affect what was in the articles. None of them, I think, had actually done it. But the potential of doing it was an important emotional reward of participating in it. Does that mean that the next form of comics incorporates a collaborative element where you can tell your own story? The choose-your-own-adventure stories of a generation ago were enormously popular with a very, very limited level of interactivity. Theoretically, you could build a comic that over a period of time the cartoonist was reacting to what the audience requested or where the audience even helps develop story ideas. That may be a piece of what comes too. I, I don't know what it will be. I got too much gray in my hair. And, and when, you, when you bring that up, for me, of course, it automatically sort of brings to mind sort of just the linkages between fan creativity, something that lots of folks here do work on, yeah, and the idea of bringing fan creativity um, into kind of the relationship that you're talking about, like you know, the the. The sort of the collab, the already collaborative nature of comics, and then adding that, I think that that's itself a kind of a fascinating, um, sort of a kind of a fascinating possibility. I kind of was. I'm sorry. Well, I, commenting just on what you said, I think one of the things that's absolutely wonderful about comics is that it is in so many ways the most accessible medium for the creators and the consumers. Now, the part of it is because it's still a medium that has a modest audience, but the ability of the civilian consumer to walk up and have a conversation with a creator directly about their work is, I think, greater in comics than in any other media form that we've got in this country. The nature of the artist alley space at comic conventions, the relative accessibility of most of the comic book creators uh, is enormous, and that makes that whole fan pro barrier much more permeable. Yeah, and you, I mean, one of the things that's very interesting is that as, as sort of, you know, a lot of the, the kind of the take on the big two, yeah, and if we throw in image three, yeah, is that as they sort of kind of tighten the screws, like the corporate sort of profit extraction nature of the enterprise of the big two in comics, there's been this enormous proliferation of artists who are doing independent work, artists who are doing online, we're doing web comics, artists who can actually make, and it's not many, but certainly more than ever before, artists who can actually make a living doing independent work. Even the Patreon, is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. My Spanish immediately wants to <laughs> You know, the Patreon model has been extraordinary for certain authors. I mean, when I look at web comics that I myself just read and find out that the creator is getting $1,500 a month from their Patreon subscription. That's a, a very different way of thinking about you know, sustaining a career, at least in the short term. Well, I think comics... And it's, absurd, and it's really diversified. I mean, the amount, you know, the, again, the big two, you'll get a, you'll get a story about a, a, a raccoon as a, you know, as a lead, 
a raccoon will be a lead before a black woman will be a lead. That's certainly true. But in web comics, that sort of relationship is altered dramatically. Um, again, I think it's an interesting case where comics are significantly ahead of many other forms in the culture. We really began to have a viable self-publishing model in comics in the early 1980s, uh, Dave Sim with Cerebus probably being the first extraordinary effort in all of that. But over the next 20 years, you build to a model where a significant number of people either in print or on the web have been able to build up meaningful audiences, meaningful relationships with their audiences. The most critical factor to my mind in comics for that success is attention span. These things are almost never overnight successes. There's tremendous opportunity in the creator-owned, self-publishing or smaller press model for the creator who's already established themselves with the majors, and the majors still have the largest economic impact in the field by far. But creators who never went near the majors, who had dedicated ability to stick to a particular story, a particular set of characters, a particular audience over an extended period of time, whether you're looking at Jeff Smith with Bone, Dave Sim with Cerebus, Terry Moore with Strangers in Paradise, um, were able to build loyal followings and economic models, and then you saw a version of that happen on the web with things like Megatokyo, um, P versus P, uh, so, so many different things. It's still an interesting set of challenges because there's there's a known space for the creator who's made their reputation doing the big name stuff. There's a known space for the creator who's built their brand in some other media form. There's an opportunity for the creator who is willing to do a slow build and some either has a day job. Uh, Jimmy Gownley, who did a wonderful book called Amelia Rules for many years, was a TV station art director through the whole time of it. Uh, we don't yet have a really good discovery mode for the one-off creation. It can happen, but it most often happens when you start having an economically strong force in the middle of it. Uh, Alison Bechtel might not have succeeded with Fun Home had she not had that published by Houghton Mifflin. Uh, her Dykes to Die For series that she'd been doing for many, many years before that had built her up some audience and some credibility, but was not able to break through in the same way. And if Fun Home had been published by the small press it was originally supposed to be published by, it might not have become the cultural force that it did. So we've got a real distance to go yet in getting to the best case. But there's a lot in the pattern that is indicative of what the opportunities are going to be for people working in prose and other forms. You know, I, I, again, I, I know you'll be modest about this, but you came here um, last year, again, you were in our world-building class, and you just, you just killed it. 
I mean, you just killed it, and it's sort of a tough thing to sort of kind of put you on the spot for this. Um, when it comes to that, do you think that this is part of what you're talking about when you say that geek culture sort of a popular culture? Because when I think about the way that trans media worlds and world building, when these sort of these parameters are thrown in, I I'm struck by what well, I'm curious about, you know, what is your take? Because certainly when you began, um, I don't think the word world building was in circulation the way it is now. Yeah. The idea of engaging across, you know, a transmedial world, the idea of like we want uh, you know, following Jenkins' sort of approach and other folks. And you, you know, you were in for a number of weeks, and you talked a lot about this. I was wondering if there's something you would offer, um, you know, this gathered here, sort of a way to fuck you up and say, what about dense <laughs> semesters worth of uh, interventions around this? Oh, good. In, in a short sort of uh, uh, ten minutes. Terrific. What's going on with this? Is it that people's literacy on sort of worlds? has increased as much as their sort of geekness has increased? Because people's, I mean, it's not just seriality. Like, I don't know if anybody's watched Twin Peaks lately. Yeah? And when you think about how Twin Peaks was, there had been no training around seriality when Twin Peaks came out. People actually didn't know how to deal right, with it, watch it outside of a certain kind of a framework. And But now, of course, the idea of, Seriality is many of you do work in this. It's and also just world. What are you thinking about this stuff? You've got quite a longitudinal view. So you have you have you have a bunch of questions in there. I know. <laughs> um, I can't help it, bro. It's okay. You're a cruel man, but just. Um, so step one in this mix. I think is that the people who were reading things about the creation of worlds a generation ago were a very select audience. And I think the people who fell in love with those worlds disproportionately became the culture creators. If you filled this room with TV showrunners, film directors, playwrights, a medium that has not been as tainted by geek culture in the same fashion, um, and you prodded them for how many of them had been reading comics, how many of them were in love with Lord of the Rings. My friend Jonah Nolan was in the press, what, 24 hours ago, talking about Foundation. Yeah. Um, and we all knew what Foundation was. This isn't a secret. Uh, and Jonah wasn't claiming it's a secret. But it's now sort of, well, everyone should have read this, damn it. Well, yes, at a certain time, everyone should have. It spanned across different groups, but it was really damn smart people. 
And it was people who didn't, not just the people who went into the media. I have a patent attorney buddy of my generation who was one of the first generation, well, I guess we're second wave science fiction fans. And we start talking about Foundation one time. And he was also a history buff, maybe a history major undergraduate before he became a lawyer. And he starts going on about, well, it's obvious that Asimov mapped Foundation on Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And starts going through chapter by chapter how each emperor connects to that. It was a group of people who understood the code of world building before it was commonplace. So that's... That's the lowest level of Schleiman's Troy in your question. You move up archaeologically to the storytelling forms, and that's an, I think that's a vital point when you talk about Twin Peaks. The dominant cultural mode of delivery that everyone's been exposed to in this country for the last couple of generations is television. Television shifts depending on how you measure it, about 35 years ago to more complex storytelling. Prior to that point, the rule for television was you have to craft everything so it can be viewed in random order. Because we don't, we'll make our money by selling the things in syndication. We don't know what order they're going to be broadcast in. People are going to watch it sometimes in one place, sometimes in another. You can't ask the audience to know anything as a precondition of what that story is. Bochco becomes one of the first people to break that. Henry's guys, actually Sam Ford, uh, when he was here, did a wonderful uh, paper on tying together the soap opera and comics and world wrestling as the earliest shared universe places. It was a really interesting piece of research. But the mass hadn't gotten that idea. The mass begins to get that idea from television. Television starts training people to the idea of an A, B, and C story. That's now actually part of civilian language. What's the A story? That's that's amazing. That's supposed to be a, a craft secret. You know, all right, we didn't kill people who started to reveal it. That was perhaps the problem. But that becomes part of the penetration. The movie business looks at all of this, looks at the young generation of writers, looks at the success of more complex stories, and you have that classic comment that one screenwriter made. When I began my career, I used to have to come in and pitch a story. Then I came in, and I, then they started wanting me to pitch a trilogy. Now they want me to pitch a world. Um, the language we're talking about is a wider language. Are there common characteristics to building a good world? Yeah, we spent a bunch of time talking about that in your class. Um, I'm not sure my formulas are any more right than anyone else's. Um, yours was pretty interesting too. We came, but we came at it from very different directions, which I think was one of the fun things of those couple of evenings, where we really looked from a high literary theory point of view and sort of a pragmatic craftsman of, okay, these seven things seem to work most often. Uh, the story. 
That's now actually part of civilian language. What's the A story? That's, a, that's amazing. That's supposed to be a, a craft secret. You know, all right, we didn't kill people who started to reveal it. That was perhaps the problem. But that becomes part of the penetration. The movie business looks at all of this, looks at the young generation of writers, looks at the success of more complex stories, and you have that classic comment that one screenwriter made. When I began my career, I used to have to come in and pitch a story.